Hello, and welcome to the first listener Q&A episode of Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian, and I'm really excited to get right into it because I've previewed some of these questions and there's a whole slew of fun stuff covering metaphysical, spiritual, psychological things. It's just gonna be really cool and meaningful. So we're gonna get right into it. All right, this question comes from Bored Musings on Instagram. She says, do different art forms require different types of creativity? For example, for someone like myself, I can come up with loads of ideas for drawings, but coming up with music or writing ideas just doesn't work for me, unquote. You know, it's a tricky question. Let's start by agreeing that creativity is a process, right? So in a sense, you cannot learn creativity from a book the way you can learn a piece of knowledge. It is a process the mind performs. Someone can give you knowledge, but they can't give you creativity, right? In that sense, it's more similar to a skill, I think. But to call it a skill, I think unfairly limits the scope of what creativity does. We should remember that we're talking about one of the most unique processes that the brain performs. Now, from my research and experience, the creative process seems to be identical across all mediums. Whether you are writing, painting, composing, or doing photography, the act itself of creativity is running the same program. It's like creativity is a richly complex set of algorithms the brain runs. And the different mediums you engage with, they just change out the variables and information chunks in these algorithm chains. But overall, the process is the same. It's a process that includes incubation, moments of insight, development of an idea, and habitual work toward completion of that idea. Uh, just to add one more thought to that, the process of creativity is it's unlike anything else our brain does. So it can be hard to view it in progress. In your question, you, you mentioned that you do loads of drawings, let's say, but coming up with music or writing doesn't work. I don't think this means that the process is any different for music or writing. I think it means two things. The first element, you have devoted a massive amount of brain time to visual art. As such, you have developed the techniques visual art requires and the knowledge of the norms, trends, and, and history of visual art. In the sense, you know the rules of the game, right? Visual art is a game with its own set of rules, and you have spent enough time with it to be comfortable. And this is very important. Comfort level at a creative medium. Once you are fluent, let's say, in a certain medium, visual art, music, dance, photography, then your internal creative process has a much easier time abstracting and rearranging the necessary elements to arrive at interesting and inspirational things. That's where the comfort level with a certain medium comes in. You know what I mean? It's like a learning curve, the learning curve of whatever medium that you're participating in. Now, there's a second element. We are born, I think, with, with propensities towards certain activities. If over the years your creative impulses have led you toward visual art, let's say eight times out of ten, when you want to do something creative, it's, you go toward visual art. It may mean that your brain is wired toward this type of experience. 
that you simply prefer exploring visual art more than music and it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle, right? Where eight times out of 10, you learn and explore visual art related things, thereby enriching your relationship to it. And although the process of creativity may be the same for making music, you haven't racked up those, let's say 8,000 hours that you've spent pursuing and thinking about visual art. So the neural highways are traveled much smoother than uh, any other form. I hope that makes sense. And there was a follow-up question from Board Musings, um, which is a good one, which is, are left-handed people really more creative? Unquote. That's funny you bring that up. Many of my personal creative icons were left-handed. Jimi Hendrix, Leonardo da Vinci, Kurt Cobain, MC Escher, yeah, the list goes on. I've long wondered whether left-handedness is some form of a creative lottery, right? But then consider this list of famous right-handers. H.R. Giger, Salvador Dali, Pablo Picasso, Frida Kahlo, and that list goes on. So the battle continues, right? Modern psychology does offer some insight into this. There have been studies that investigate the link between left or right-hand preference and creativity. Uh, here's one. This is a study from the Netherlands, done this year actually, 2019, that covers just such a topic. If you want to look it up, the name, the very long name of the paper is Does Hand Skill Asymmetry Relate to Creativity, Developmental and Health Issues, and Aggression as Markers of Fitness? Unquote. Yeah, that's a mouthful. Now in this study, there were 20,539 participants, 56% of whom were left-handed, so a little more than half, now they asked these 20,000 participants questions about their experiences with creativity. Uh, one of the first questions was to rate themselves on a scale of zero to 10 for how creative they are. The left-handers conclusively answered higher on the scale than the right-handers. But you can of course argue that the left-handers are just fitting themselves into the cultural narrative that we all buy into, the idea that left-handers are more creative, so maybe, you know, left-hander might answer an eight when maybe in reality they're a six, or a right-hander might answer a six and uh, be more truthful. Who knows? You know, these factors are at play. But the, it's the follow-up question that really revealed something insightful. So of all 20,000 participants, they were asked, how many hours per week do they spend in various creative activities? Music, visual art, writing, storytelling, performance, etc. The result was surprising. Comparing left and right-handed people, there was no difference in the amount of time spent doing creative tasks. They were nearly even, nearly identical in their engagement in creative activities. So, is this the final word to the whole left versus right argument? Well, kind of. It doesn't completely address the act of their creative process, I think. I mean, are left-handed people more likely, let's say, to have inspiration or approach a task with more insightful ideas than right-handed people? That we don't know. It's a mystery, still. So it's not a case-closed answer. There's some more complexities and variables, but we're a little closer to understanding that. This question comes from Miguel de Jesus, who says, since we, 
as artists, musicians, etc., have had and continue to have influences in our art or music, consciously and subconsciously, how much of what we create is actually our own creativity? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good one. I think from my own intuition on the subject and seeing how other people work and seeing my own process as it's used in all these different creative endeavors that I participate in, I would say about 90% of creativity is the reorganization of existing material. And only about 10%, maybe even less, is genuine insight that creates something new or unique. And that's a weird thought, because most people, maybe if they're not participating in art and they go to a museum or they read a new book, it's easy to assume that so much of that, that what they're digesting is unique and was created out of some genuine insight and it blossomed forth. But it's weird and it almost lessens the creative act to say that much of creativity, 90% that you yourself do, is just the reorganization of existing material. Now that reorganization may be a form of reinterpretation of existing material, you know? It may be, if you're talking about music, it may be taking the rhythm of a guitar riff that you really liked and putting it in a different area on the guitar, a different key, taking the rhythm instead of it being in a four beats per bar to a three beats per bar, and now something new starts to blossom forth, right? But how new that is, you can of course argue that it's, it's, it's based on original material and you're, it's being reinterpreted. It's, it's kind of being given new life. And so in that sense, something truly new or unique is really rare and is really difficult to find, let alone create. Well, one can certainly argue that, that when something is truly new, it's almost like uh, the audience doesn't know what to do with it if it's too new, right? If there's too much newness to a work of art or a work of music or a work of poetry or writing, there's no ground to stand on. And the person who ends up viewing it, listening to it, digesting it, they have no frame of reference. And in some ways, we need that familiarity to understand what are the building blocks here and what material has been reinterpreted. So maybe it's good. Maybe it's good that 90% of what we do as artists is the act of reinterpreting existing material in some kind of inner cauldron, right? Because if we were constantly creating, just generating newness, I think probably people wouldn't know what to do with it. It would just be kind of chaos, right? We need the, that structure, we need that bedrock of a frame of reference, that this is being made in a certain style. In a sense, even if we're talking about music still, that's what style is, right? If we're saying we're making a song in a heavy metal style, there's only so much newness you can give that. In a sense, uh, you're, you're constantly reinterpreting the elements of what a heavy metal style are. So 90% of that is existing material. And then you have to, to be relevant, to be interesting, you have to get that 10% of true newness in there. Uh, because that's where the life really is. I think that's what catches people's attention. 
you know, that's certainly what catches my attention when looking at something that you know, sets me back for a second, like, whoa, never heard that before. So that's the way I see it, anyway. Our next question comes from Kate on Instagram. Her account name is Merciful Kate, M-E-R-C-Y-F-U-L-K-A-T-E. And she asks, you are involved with several creative endeavors, visual arts, music, podcasting, etc. Is there one that you find speaks to your creative side a little bit more than the others? Or do you find them all equally important and why? Unquote. Oh, a personal one. Um, that's tricky, you know? I'm guilty, certainly, of dabbling in quite a few different creative forms. If I traced it back to when I was a preteen, one of my first creative inclinations was visual art. And so I would draw quite a lot, you know, draw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I would come home from school and things like that. I wasn't, I wasn't really particularly exceptional, though, like as a, as a kid, you know, elementary school. Um, as I started to get through junior high, I, I would illustrate more and be influenced by comic book art. And I wanted to become a comic book illustrator. I remember one time going to a comic book shop um, and bringing in just one of these composition books of, of uh, you know, that you, you're supposed to write in, but I was drawing in there. And I asked um, <laughs> the, the guy at the cash register, hey, um, what do you think of this art? And do you think I could become a comic book illustrator? And he said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the, I guess I, I didn't have many people, you know, to ask these kinds of things. But then progressively, you know, time went on and, and uh, I became interested in music as well toward, toward around junior high into high school. So it's tricky. It's weird. I, I, think, I think we take for granted the idea that we're supposed to stick to one form of art. I mean, even someone like Kanye West, uh, early in his career, he said it was strange that people viewed him as like this great genius musician because he started with visual art. I guess maybe this was around the time of high school also. And that's a weird one to think, you know, that he was doing visual art as his main creative drive. I think so, so we take this idea for granted that there's one lane that we're supposed to fit into. And I think it comes from just a general misunderstanding in society of the way creativity exists and blossoms in the mind. So it's something to consider even in your own life when you're pursuing any kind of creative field. I think the idea of, of putting in the hours into a specific creative field, that's what gives you more of an expertise and the skill in that field. But we shouldn't assume that it, I think it's limited. In my own preferences, though, I really love music. I really love visual art. Because of the amount of time, years in college, you know, one degree and then years for another degree that I've spent... Uh, focused on music and, and composing and all, all these elements of, of musical creation, I would probably say music is my primary one, with visual art being a very close second because of my teenage years being focused on that so much. And then the other aspects like poetry, you know, some form of writing, which is basically what this podcast is. A lot of stuff is written down that I do for the narrative episodes. So with, with those other areas of, of creativity and, and film, sometimes in the music videos, being secondary to possibly close third. And that's where I stand. Interesting thing to investigate about yourself too. You know, Don't take for granted the idea that you should be in one lane 
sticking to one lane and trying to master it really helps because that gives you more in your toolbox to use. But creativity is more fluid, I think. And thanks for the question. This next question comes to us from ramblin underscore Rudy on Instagram. She asks, how long was Frida Kahlo bedridden for after her accident? I always wondered because I'm physically incapable and it inspires me that she created every day even when she couldn't walk. That's a really good one. Um, I have to get into the right state of mind to talk about you know this kind of Frida Kahlo stuff because it's really affecting, you know, learning about what she went through and the amount of willpower that she must have had in her, you know, her own character to fight through and live through this and, and still live a, a long life for all accounts. So after the accident, she had very, very severe injuries, um, which I talk about more in more detail in that episode, episode three is the Frida Kahlo episode of this podcast. Um, but some of her injuries included a fractured pelvis and some broken limbs. Her foot was crushed. Her hip was actually pierced through into her stomach by a metal bar. And her spine was very injured, so much so that for the rest of her life, she was in and out of hospitals, you know. And she would spend weeks at a time in these hospitals. And that would be some of the time that she would paint. But much of the time that is credited as her, her, her painting and her creative um, personal solitude time was when she was at home, bedridden, because of these ailments and these pains she was experiencing. And so it would be at home that she would paint. So following the accident, she was in the hospital for the period of exactly one month, and then she was discharged. And afterward, she was bedridden at home with you know minimal movement for the following months, occasionally being able to get out of bed and, and you know, carefully maneuver around. But even then, it, things were very difficult. Eventually, she became more mobile, became more mobile and was able to travel and things like this. But it was around this time of being bedridden that she began to first paint. And just to give you more insight into, you know, what her state of mind and what she must have been going through, I have some excerpts from letters at the time that she would write to her then boyfriend Alejandro and curiously Alejandro was actually on that bus when it was when the accident happened and the train hit it so he you know intimately knew all of the things that were going on with her and uh, had visited her in the hospital as well so here's one excerpt just from something having to do with what we're talking about from a letter uh, written Tuesday October 20th in 1925 Frida says, The doctor doubts that I will be able to straighten my arm, because the articulation is good, but the tendon is very contracted, and it prevents me from moving my arm forward, and if I am to be able to stretch it, will be very slowly and with much massage and hot water baths. It hurts more than you can imagine, and at every jerk that they give me, I cry quarts of tears in spite of the fact that they tell you not to believe in a dog's limp or a woman's tears, my foot also hurts a lot, since, as you must realize, it is very smashed, and also I have horrible shooting pains in the whole leg, and I am very bothered, as you can imagine, but with the rest, they tell me that the bone will close soon, and afterward, little by little, I will be able to walk. Unquote. And 
She did walk, eventually, sometimes with the assistance of a cane, and other times, eventually, being able to walk under her own will. Uh, here's another excerpt that really gives you a, a picture, you know, of what was going on at the time, not even two months after the accident. This was uh, Monday, October 26th, 1925. Uh, she would have been at home at this point. She writes to Alex, as she calls him, Alex. I just received your letter today, and although I had expected it much before, it did a lot to take away the pains that I was having, since, imagine, yesterday, Sunday at nine, they chloroformed me for the third time to lower the tendon in my arm, which, as I already told you, was contracted. But since the chloroform has worn off, which was at ten o'clock, I was screaming until six in the afternoon when they gave me an injection of sedol, and it didn't do anything to me since the pains continued, although a little less intense. Afterward, they gave me cocaine, and that was how the pains went away a little. But the attack of nausea did not go away all day. Imagine that the other day when Mati came to see me, that is to say Saturday night, my mother had an attack, and I was the first to hear her shout, and since I was asleep, I forgot for a moment that I was sick, and I wanted to get up. I felt a horrible pain in my waist and an anguish more terrible than you can imagine. Alex, since I wanted to stand up and I could not, finally I called Kitty, and all that did me a lot of harm since I am very nervous. Well, I was telling you about yesterday. During the whole night I did nothing but vomit, and I was horribly upset. Poor Vila came to see me, but they could not let him into my room since I was bothered by those pains. Veristique came, too, but I did not see him either. This morning I woke up with an inflammation where I had a fractured pelvis. How that word disgusts me. I didn't know what to do, so I drank water and I vomited it because of the same inflammation in my whole stomach, which came from all the yelling I did yesterday. Now my head does not hurt anymore, but I tell you that I am desperate from being in bed so much and in only one position. I wish that if only little by little I could begin to sit but there is no recourse for me except to endure it." Unquote. So yeah, some pretty intense stuff. And it's certainly understandable how many people find inspiration in her story, in her life, and in the fact that she was able to create these beautiful works of art that she did. I hope that helps answer your question. And Ramblin underscore Rudy had a follow-up question, which was also, did Salvador Dali have a wife, or just mistresses, or both? That's a good one, too. So Dali's personal life, his relationship life, and his sexual life is, is really a weird and interesting topic. I mean, we know that he had a very close relationship with his wife, Gala. By all accounts, you know, he loved her, and he was faithful to her, but... Uh, at some point in their relationship, they agreed that they could uh, be polygamous. And so although they continued to be married officially, Gala was allowed to sleep with other men. And it seems like Dali was allowed to explore his sexuality in, in any way he saw fit to explore. At some point in, in their later life, they actually not only lived in separate homes, but they would spend long periods of time separated from each other in different countries even. And it's known that Gala had the company of many young men, which she really enjoyed and was you know, sexually intimate with them. 
It seemed that Dolly's sexuality is, is something odd to define. From an early age, he states this himself, he had an aversion to the female genitalia, which made it difficult for him to have personal relationships with women early on. Um, as time went on, it seems like he did eventually uh, get over this. But it, it's, it's a weird thing. It's, it's like a, an entire book can be written about Dolly's sexuality. It's known that he had experiences where he would watch other men make love to his wife Gala while he pleasured himself to that display. So there's, there's definitely some weirdness and some interesting things to be said about that. Uh, whether he had actual mistresses, he certainly had attractive models and women around him um, in his later years that uh, he would sometimes pay just for their company whether they were mistresses or not. Uh, so it's been up for debate for a long time because the people who were these models, they never confirmed that that's what was happening. But they were clearly spending a lot of you know, intimate personal time with him. So it's complicated, as all things are with Salvador Dali. But good question. Our next question comes from Jazz underscore Muerta from Instagram. She asks, I would like to ask something to the effect of, what is the source of creativity? I mean this in the greater sense, as in, all creation of man finds the source from... Question mark. When Beethoven created his symphonies, from where did that otherworldly music manifest? Were there angels assisting him? God himself? Unquote. All right. Throwing in those existential, metaphysical questions. Okay, bring it on. I will do my best to fumble my way through a meaningful answer. <laughs> so I think we can attack a question like this at least in three different ways, right? If you think about it, we can attack it in terms of what is creativity, what is the source of creativity from psychology's standpoint, what is the source of creativity from the standpoint of metaphysics, what is the source of creativity from the standpoint of religion and theology? We'll work it backwards. So if we take the standpoint of religion, of a tradition like Christianity, we can see this idea that human beings are a reflection of God. We've, given, we've been given some kind of special place in the cosmos and in the state of things and other creatures on this earth. So Christianity argues. So as a reflection of God, we have all the other aspects that God has. And I think if we, you know, travel down that line of reasoning, we can say that our ability for creating and the energy that propels that ability is part of that original spark of creation that God has the ability to manifest, right? It seems that that's what it all implies as a reflection of the creator. And now we can try to answer the question metaphysically. Now, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately myself. This idea that we as human beings, as we become more complex, as our brains become more dense with their intricate layers, uh, we start to reflect the universe itself. Because what is more complex, what is more complicated than the universe, right? I mean, it is... It, it, it is the measuring stick for complexity, right? There's nothing else we know of. 
So as we become more complex, we start to mirror what we see and what almost, I guess, our molecules are seeing in the universe. And we start to do that. So I think we can argue that creativity and the energy that brings it forth is a reflection of what is happening in the universe all around us and what perhaps happened from the beginning, from the Big Bang, as it you know, exploded outward with massive force and velocity. And so that little spark is still within us and the act of creation is a reflection of what the universe is constantly doing in manifesting things from the unmanifest. Hope that makes sense. Then we can attack the question of the source of creativity from a psychological standpoint. We can definitely say that it can be viewed as an adaptation from evolution, right? As people hundreds of thousands of years ago were struggling with changes in the climate, changes in their environment and the weather and, and everything, they had to survive. And the ability to be creative was a huge thing. You know, the ability to adapt is completely determined on your ability to have insights in your environment, right? This takes us back to something like the Ice Age, where early humans would kill a woolly mammoth, let's say, in the hunt. And they wouldn't just use it for meat to eat, right? They would also use it for fur, for clothing. They would use it for boots. They would use it not just for the meat, also for the bone. The bones, they would then carve into new weapons, right? And new tools. And they would even use something like the sinew of the muscles and the meat to make thread, to help them in making new clothes. So that comes all from creativity, right? That comes all from the adaptation to see your environment just completely teeming with possibilities for insight. And if you as an early human and throughout you know, civilization are able to see that potential in the environment to harvest all of that, then that's, that's a huge thing, you know? And that makes you that much more successful in wherever you are. So, psychologically, we can say something like it's an evolutionary adaptation. It's incredibly unique to humans in terms of the scope that we do it. So I hope that in some reasonable way answers that enormous question. Thank you for posing it. Now that same person, Jazz underscore Muerta, asked a follow-up question, which is, Sometimes we are brought to tears by creation. The sound or the formation is too beautiful and seems to transfer celestial or heavenly perfection onto earth. How is it so? What is the purpose of these experiences and why does this transference happen? Unquote. Wow. So it seems there that you are describing a specific moment that I think can also be described as a mystical experience or something akin to a mystical experience, a religious experience. A moment where you see something in your reality that resonates deeply with a part of yourself and in some way makes you feel like you're synchronized in that moment of reality, right? There is certainly something to be said of, of uh, aesthetic beauty, but there are definitely moments that feel like there are mystical truths or there are these moments where we sync up with our reality and our life for just a few minutes so well, you know, that the a certain shaft of light through the trees 
or a certain shadow on the ground just seems perfect on its own, right? That it, it's existing and it's, it's a form of just perfection and beauty of creation. And I really can't say what that is, you know, because there's aesthetic beauty, which we can argue about all day, and we can say that's linked to our ability to perceive harmony in our visual field, but also in, in other aspects that are more abstract. But what you're describing is, is something more akin to a mystical or, or religious experience. And as significant as those are, and as much as I respect them, I don't know what those are, you know? I wish I did. And I'd like to know more about them too. Our next question is from Fernando on Instagram. His username, formerly the latter. And he asks, on creativity, how do you get over yourself? Meaning the struggle with the voices trying to hold you back from forging on ahead with a project. Not good enough, better people do this better than me, and so on. And on the artists covered on the podcast, of all the people you've shared with us, which one would you spend a night with discussing all things life and creativity? Oh, that's a fun one. Oh boy, first a heavy one and then a light one, huh? Okay, hmm, how do you get over yourself? I think part of this idea of getting over yourself, getting over the voices of doubt, of discouragement inside of you, is this idea of acknowledging, one, that everyone in all time has had those voices, no matter how great of a creative artist and genius they were, those voices come up. In some way, you can try to make those voices your friend instead of your enemy. Sometimes those voices are helpful. It's important to doubt things, you know? It's important to constantly question your environment, to double check that you know reality is functioning the way it's supposed to or that you thought it did, very importantly, right? Maybe we have a misjudgment of how we're functioning in our reality and we need to self-correct. So doubts, they definitely have a place. We, we shouldn't get rid of you know, our ability to doubt things and our ability to doubt ourselves you know, by that token. But certainly there's a moment where those doubts, those self-discouraging comments can get out of hand and can actually, you know, discourage and, and stop you from pursuing those creative tasks. And so to that, I would say, I find it helpful to acknowledge things that you are taught, like in, in therapy and, and things you're taught in psychology, which is, you know, you have different parts of your brain. You know, you really do. We're not one united human mind. We're, in fact, a multiplicity of parts. Our brain is almost like 30 different people you know, pursuing one thing. You have all these motivations, you know, you have all these hidden energies that propel you toward all your decisions in your life. So it's natural for there occasionally to be a counter voice, you know, a counter argument to what you want to do mainly. So when you consciously decide you're pursuing this, naturally you can expect there's going to be another voice, if not immediately at some point, that's going to hurl some doubts at it, throw some shade on the idea, right? And so it's helpful to remember this idea, let's say, that as a ball of consciousness in your brain, you are the captain of the ship. And so these 30 crew members that, um, you know, like the, the seven dwarfs kind of analogy, you know, there's sleepy, grumpy, angry, happy, horny, who knows what else, right? So these, these 30 other crew members in your ship 
they're gonna sometimes say things that you don't want to pursue and they're gonna sometimes doubt your course of action. And so it's inevitable, it's gonna happen. And so when it does, you kind of like expect it, like, oh yeah, doubts, right? What's also helpful in that sense is setting goals for yourself. Because goals, a to-do list, a sense of what I want to accomplish in the next six months, what I want to accomplish in the next year, it puts down a framework of action into the actual reality around you, right? And when you have a framework, when you have these goals set out, it's actually a lot harder for those doubts, that, that crew member of the ship who always says, oh, this is a shit idea. You know, it's, it's harder for him to get any leeway and to get any ground. Because when, once the goals are set out, then every member is moving toward those things. But again, you know, doubts are useful. Doubts are important. It's important to be reasonable about what you're doing and about your environment and understanding how you fit into it. But yeah, I think the goals thing helps. And on with the other question, which was on the artists covered by the podcast, of all the people you've shared with us, which one would you spend a night with? I'm assuming not sexually. Oh, he continues. Discussing all things life and creativity. Oh, man. Imagine just, imagine being in a room with all of them. I mean, with Leonardo da Vinci, Nikola Tesla, Frida Kahlo, you know, Salvador Dali, H.R. Giger. That would, that would be a party. So I would probably have to choose Nikola Tesla. Just, I've always been so fascinated by this dude and how his brain must have worked. And I know, I completely know it would be an awkward conversation. And I know that we wouldn't even have the shield of, of a drink, you know, being in front of us and being able to be at a bar because the guy didn't drink. So what would you do? You'd sit down with him with a you know, glass of ice water and try to have a conversation with him. I would totally uh, jump onto some of those uh, experiments he would do with Mark Twain too. Like they would take x-rays of each other. You know, Nikola Tesla developed like this x-ray cannon gun, right? And so um, when Mark Twain would come over, they would shoot x-ray beams at each other's skulls and hands and feet and stuff. And then, you know, have them come out and just like marvel at, wow, that's just so cool. Um, which, you know, obviously wasn't healthy, but it would be pretty fun to do. The next question comes from a follower on Instagram, D-E-Z Beats. He says, Do you think appreciating someone's craft, art, creativity is dependent on their personality? For example, this guy I used to work with said I had dope beats. He liked them, thought they were different, unique, etc. He said I had a Kanye feel to it because they were very left field beats, not your ordinary instrumentals. Then I stopped talking to this guy for reasons. He's a manipulative ass crack. Now all of a sudden he's going around telling people my music sucks and it's garbage. Personally, I don't care. I just thought it was interesting that no matter how creative I can be, if someone doesn't like me personally, that determines the level of appreciation for my art. And I guess you could also explore people like Michael Jackson, his creativity versus child molestation accusations, or R. Kelly and his art versus his charges. Ooh, okay. So I think I agree on this idea that most people have a difficult time separating their personal opinions about the artist and the art in question, you know? 
Most people, when they listen to a pop song, after hearing it, whether it's you know good, bad, or medium, they'll look up that artist, and when they find out more about that artist, they'll either like the song more or maybe care less about the song, depending on their own biases about certain kinds of people, or depending on if that artist happens to have something in their history that jives with their own past history, right? If you look up an artist that happens to be from your same hometown, boom, that same song is just 10 times better, right? Same song you just listened to. You're gonna re-listen to it again and find new meaning in it. Same thing with anything else, any other facet of their physical looks to their past history will inform your ability to appreciate that art, whether it's music, you know, visual art, theater, dance. It seems like that's just the way psychology works. I kind of wish that it didn't. I'm fascinated by that idea, you know, of anonymity in art and whether things can be seen objectively. But, you know, I've experimented with this in, in my own stuff, which is part of the whole reason of this whole masked gas mask thing that I do when I'm, I'm doing pop music and things like that. It's the exploration of, you know, what is identity in this age of overexposure, and can somebody view something objectively without needing that information of who this artist is? And that's what I've arrived at. I've arrived that it's very difficult for people to separate the two. But interestingly enough, I think some people can. And it's the people who have an expertise in that field. So let's say if you're a musician, you know, and you've, you've put in almost your 10,000 hours into mastering your craft, when you listen to music, you don't depend upon that information of who that artist is as much as regular people who don't have that expertise. And so I think that's the way around that bias, right? It's becoming more familiar with that particular art form, skill, or craft, and you circumvent that inclination of our mind to associate artist with art. Now, in terms of Michael Jackson, R. Kelly, oh, that's a can of worms. Um, I still really like Michael Jackson's music. I watched the HBO documentary about the two accusers, and I tend to believe them. I'm not going to get into why in this podcast, but... Um, if the things are true that are true, uh, that's, that's insane. That's awful. At the same time, you know, certain songs, I can't help but like certain songs. You know, what are you going to do? You're a human being, right? And also, I think it comes into play with this idea that when you've participated in that craft long enough, you can enjoy the final work without associating it with that particular creator, Right? I hope that makes sense. Our next question comes from Instagram user House of Valois Tarot. That's House, H-O-U-S-E, of Valois, V-A-L-O-I-S, and Tarot, T-A-R-O-T. And she asks, I am thinking, is creativity a product of the self, or is self a product of creativity? Do artists utilize and are they drawn to creativity as a means to express their experiences, feelings, psyche? Or do they utilize creativity as a means to find those things? Is it both? Can it be both? 
unquote. Yeah, that's a really fun one to explore. It reminds me of someone like David Bowie, who throughout his life created at least five characters or personas which he would inhabit. And so in some ways it does match with what you're saying, which is, you know, does creativity allow us to find those expressions and emotions in our own psyche? Or does it allow us to create those things, right? Or create ourself in a sense. If you look at someone like David Bowie, these characters would be actual personalities he would inhabit in his daily life even. You know, when you look at him in interviews, if he was uh, the White Duke during that period of time, which was one of his characters, he was going to be a jerk. If he was Ziggy Stardust, he was going to be Ziggy Stardust throughout the day. With a character like the White Duke, it's really strange. I mean, he even adapted a specific diet for that over a year period of time when he was the White Duke, which was a diet consisting of milk, red peppers, and cocaine. Yeah, right. That's not a good diet. But anyway, this idea has certainly existed for a long time that an artist can create a, a self, right? I mean, that's what that is. They're creating a self and inhabiting it. There's benefits to that in a weird way because then their real internal self is guarded in a sense. Now they're interacting with the world through a mask, right? It's like their hand is wearing a glove that allows them to interact with the world through a shield of safety. But at the same time, that self that they're inhabiting also allows them to be incredibly forthright and honest about things inside of themselves. And so then they can project their experiences into this character they've created. And for all intents and purposes, the audience will assume what the character is doing and experiencing and talking about is made up just like the character is. But when in fact, the artist is expressing something deeply seated in their own being or something vulnerable about themselves and they don't have to feel judged, right? They don't have to feel like the public is critiquing them. The public is critiquing this creation of theirs, this self they're inhabiting. So in that sense, I think that's, that's what it reminded me of. But I, I feel like you're maybe thinking of it even in a more deep way in terms of the actual self, right? Of the person, of, of any individual. And that's an interesting one. I've never heard that idea before. That creativity might be creating a self. But what that would imply, though, would be an interesting implication that people who aren't artists have a weaker self, right? And I don't know if that's true. That's an interesting argument. There's certainly plenty of artists who have issues, mental issues, um, disorders, and everything. But certainly there's plenty of people with mental disorders who aren't artists. But one thing is definitely true, no matter which one of those people we're talking about, that art has a therapeutic quality to it. So if someone is suffering from whatever mental issue they have, art has a way of clearing out and helping you to understand those struggles. And so in that sense, it's not only expressing those emotions, it's helping untangle them, right? It's helping you to understand and 
ideally to even alleviate their pressure? Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that question. The following question comes from Instagram user Studio7x7. Uh, so a few questions, so I'll answer them in order. First question, what sparks creativity? I think the first things that plant a seed in your mind that will eventually lead to a creative moment, a creative process beginning, are one of two things. Either a problem, which is something placed in front of you that now is asking for a solution. And your mind enters the process unconsciously of starting to figure out what this solution could be. The other thing that could um, spur the wheels of creative process uh, is curiosity. Just the experience of seeing something and being curious. What is that? How does that work? How could I do that? Curiosity is a brilliant and beautiful thing in terms of how it initiates your creative process. And people like Leonardo da Vinci uh, were noted for their insatiable curiosity, just looking at their notebooks, how they wanted to figure out everything about the world, you know, and it led them into paths of being creative in all aspects of their life and different styles and mediums and uh, forms of creativity. One example of Leonardo da Vinci's like curiosity was he would have to-do lists of things he needed to do that day, you know, have to get meat, have to get this, have to see the local merchant. And then within that to-do list would be creative tasks, like what is the texture of a woodpecker's tongue? Like, what the heck? What does he need that for? You know, just stuff like that. But it's just curiosity at work. You know, another one would be how does a bird fly? What do the bones of a bird's wing look like? You know, stuff like that. And so it's the idea of a problem or just basic curiosity leading you into areas um, of mystery and, and areas that you marvel at and then cause you to travel down further paths that lead to creative insights. The next question from Studio 7x7, where does creative energy come from? Why do we create? I don't know that we can call it creative energy, which is weird because, you know, you can say that creativity is the you know spark of divinity. Creativity is the energy left over from the Big Bang and, and all this romantic, beautiful stuff. But I think the idea of seeing it as a process is, is really helpful. I mean, certainly we can't say that we can call creativity an energy the way we can call anger an energy right? Um, we can't speak of creativity in the same way that we can of our emotions. Emotions certainly feel like energies, right? Or spirits of some kind, you know, the, in the ancient mythology, our emotions were labeled as spirits that we get taken over by. But creativity is a curious one. I don't know if we can label it as an energy, but certainly a process. Now, where does it come from? Why do we create? That's a really deep question. And I think that gets to the heart of what humans are, right? What is creativity and why do we create is actually asking what is it to be human? Because it's one of our defining aspects, one of the defining traits of our species. So why do we create? We got to figure that one out. 
Also, the next question from Studio 7x7, what are creativity and the arts role in society civilization? Is it necessary? How has it contributed to society? Well, yeah, totally. I mean, I'm sure you have your own sense of an answer to that question. Um, there is no society without creativity. Just plain and simple. And I think the sign of a healthy society is one where the creative arts flourish. Because it's a sign that there's enough of an economic support for artists to be creating and not to be worrying about what are they going to eat in an hour, you know, not to be worrying about they don't have a roof over their head. Usually people who are severely impoverished or in low forms of poverty, they don't think about being creative or expressing themselves artistically because they got to focus on surviving, right? So I think a sign of a healthy society is a society where the arts flourish. Now, the other reason, though, is because, as I'm sure you feel the same, the arts are an expression of the human soul, right? It goes back to your earlier question, why do we create? The arts are one of the ways that we tackle the existential question of meaning. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of the event that happened to me last year? What is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of that? So all forms of art are tackling the question of human existence. And for that to be missing from a society, I don't want to be part of that society. That's what, what, are the, what is the society going to be about? Money? So that's my take on it. Great line of questions. Man, you guys are really challenging my intellect today. That's, this is all good stuff. This is amazing. I love these questions. And it's not at all like surface level things like, <laughs> like what was Nikola Tesla's favorite color? Like this is heavy stuff. Goodness gracious. My next question comes from Juan, or otherwise known as Rufino. His Instagram is jrufino, J-R-U-F-I-N-O. Hello, Juan. Here is my question slash request. Can you please demystify that great artistic work is a product of the supernatural or chemical substance? I know Giger abused of substance, but I strongly believe his talents and creativity has nothing to do with that. I know it is a basic question, but still people in the 21st century believe so, and it affects the idea people have on creativity, who think that creativity is a field reserved to artists, and what is worst, that creativity has to do with things out of ourselves. Yeah. Thank you, Juan. This is good stuff. So, I think what you're getting at is the idea that, one, drugs, substances, alcohol doesn't make you a better artist, right? And in fact, the art that you create on drugs is not because of the drugs, an important distinction to make. And the other thing you're getting at is that supernatural elements aren't to blame, aren't the causes of the great creative works of human history. I don't know about that one, but I can definitely speak to drugs and substances. So, you know, there, there was a period of time in America in the 60s and 70s where a lot of psychedelic drugs were being used, right? Acid, mushrooms, all forms of everything else. And great, great bands created great, great music from that time period. And a lot of that great music 
was while they were under the influence of some kind of substance. So, in many ways, this romanticizing of drugs as an element in creativity could probably be said to have started around there, at least in, in American thought. But there's a lot of stuff wrong with that idea. I mean, for one, even looking at, let's say, these great rock bands, you know, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles were known to be doing a lot of drugs during the White Album era, Pink Floyd and all this stuff. You know, all these bands, even if they were high out of their gourd while they were, you know, in these studios making this music, at the point when they were making this music, they had already mastered their crafts, right? Like at the point where they were writing these songs, whether they're on heroin, on LSD, whether they're just high on weed, they already put in an ungodly amount of hours into their craft, into playing shows, into writing songs. As Malcolm Gladwell puts forward, their 10,000 hours have been put in already. And so the idea that it's the drugs, you know, the substances that's creating the artwork, oh man, you're looking in the wrong corner. What's really creating the artwork is that ungodly amount of time that they put into their craft. So what ends up happening, let's say realistically, with taking a drug while someone is performing a craft they've mastered, I think it distorts their creative ability. At the same time, it allows them to look at the world in a unique way. So I'm not completely writing off substances um, when they're used in a controlled environment, when they're used responsibly. But certainly I agree with you that it's not the substances making the genius level stuff. That's the person's brain, uh, which would already make that genius level stuff without those drugs, right? Without alcohol and all that other stuff. Good. It's an, it's an important distinction to point out. Thank you for that. And to your other question in terms of whether something supernatural is involved, I don't want to say no, you know? There, there's plenty of people who have gone this way before me who are much wiser than I am who say that there's a supernatural element to creativity. You know, there's a whole mythology in ancient Greek thought that our creative impulses and our inspiration come from the muses, you know, from actual gods, goddesses. Who am I to say that that's not true? So we'll leave that one a mystery then. But thank you for the questions. The next question comes from Riz underscore land. That's R-I-Z underscore L-A-N-D from Instagram. And he asks, okay, your thoughts on Frida's political beliefs, unquote. Okay, so I should first start by saying I don't think art and politics should ever meet or mingle or mix. I think they're two exclusive types of human uh, endeavors. And when you mix the two of them, then you get propaganda. That's not a lasting art form and that ages really terribly over time. There's a few pieces uh, by Frida where she uses the image of Karl Marx and communist symbology. And those are the pieces that no one talks about. Not because it's not politically correct to talk about them, but because they're just not very good. They don't age well, you know? And it's known that she was a fervent believer in communism, as was her husband. And it informed a lot of her political thought, obviously, and her outlook on the world and 
um, the kind of people that she surrounded herself with. So much so that when she died and they had her funeral, uh, they covered her body with a Soviet flag. Now, that wasn't one of her wishes, and it wasn't Diego Rivera's wish either, just someone who had come there to um, show their respects had brought the flag and placed it on her because it was a fellow communist follower. And then whether we're getting into how valid communist beliefs are, well, again, politics aren't my forte. I have some opinions about it, but that'll be better, you know, in a conversation about politics. But thank you. Uh, Frida Kahlo's still a fascinating character, uh, you know, even to this day for many, many reasons. All right. The next question comes to us from Clinton King. He's one of the artists featured in one of my conversation series episodes of the podcast, and he writes, I think a good question for anyone to ask about creativity, or perhaps to be more specific, the act of creating, would be related to the aura of magic, the ideas and beliefs we have about inspiration, skill, and beauty. This versus hard work practically, and limiting energy resources. One thing that bridged these concepts for me was the flowchart model by Milhali Csikszentmihalyi. That's the best I'll do on that one. It's so simple yet profound. How am I challenging myself enough or too much? Do I have a proper assessment of my skill level? The Dunning-Kruger effect is real. Most people don't realize that they don't realize. All right. There's a few things covered there. And uh, they're all pretty important to mention and to understand and to think about. So if we start in reverse, it might make more sense. The Dunning-Kruger effect, that's something really neat and interesting that we've learned from psychology in the last uh, two or three decades about the human brain. It comes originally from this really great anecdote of an actual crime that happened. So there was a robber in Pittsburgh in 1995. He robbed two banks. And in the surveillance footage, you can see him you know, walking out of the bank. He looks up at the camera and smiles and then walks out the door. So, of course, the cops were able to apprehend him pretty quickly and figure out who it was and arrest him. But as they were putting the handcuffs on him, he looked confused. He didn't understand how they caught him. And they said, well, we saw you on the surveillance footage. And then he responded, but I wore the juice. And they were like, what? He said, I wore the juice. And they didn't know what he was talking about, understandably. And so it turned out, after later questions, that he had applied lemon juice to his face. The theory was that part of the ingredients in Invisible Ink is lemon juice. And so his theory was if he applied lemon juice on his face, the security cameras would render his face invisible to the human eye. Where he got this theory, who knows? Maybe a friend told him, but in either case, what was especially remarkable and noteworthy, aside from his amazing catchphrase, I wore the juice, is this idea that he was so confident that these cameras wouldn't see him. You know, that he wore the lemon juice and he committed two burglaries of banks, and yet he was so confident that he was going to be fine, he didn't wear a mask. So these two social psychologists, which were named Dunning and Kruger, hence the, the term, they ended up creating a research experiment and study out of this. And the idea was to test 
people's level of confidence and how it relates to their level of knowledge in a particular skill or a field of knowledge. And so what they found was, was really unique and it confirms what happened to the I wore the juice guy. What the results ended up showing is that people who have a low level of knowledge in any field, whether it's you know mathematics, science, politics, or a certain skill or trade, if they have a low level of knowledge, they overestimate the amount of knowledge they think they have. They overestimate their confidence in that field. So if somebody was taking a test on you know, the skills and knowledge of photography, they would overestimate how confident they are that they know everything, even though maybe they just started a month ago. And the test result would be a failing mark, but they would be surprised because they would have assumed that they would have gotten at least above average, a B, let's say, right? Now, on the flip side, interestingly enough, people who know a lot in any given field, in this case, we'll say photography again, someone who's spent several years mastering the trade and understanding how the different cameras work and all this, if they were to take that same test, they would assume they have an above average level of understanding, but they wouldn't assume that they were experts that were in the 90th percentile, even if they were, which is what's curious. So even if somebody were to score an A or an A+, afterward, if you would have asked them before they saw the test results, they would assume they were going to score a B or B plus at best. So it's a curious idea, and it seems to check out. The idea being, if somebody has a complete amateur level of experience in any field of knowledge or skill, they're going to be overconfident of their ability. And so it's something to be careful of, because overconfidence can lead you astray in a sense. So probably the best course of action is to always assume you can know more about any given field of knowledge, but also that if you feel you're always correct, ah, uh, there may be something wrong, you know? It's possible you're like that I wore the juice guy, and you don't want to be that guy. And now the other thing that Clinton mentioned to consider in your mind is the flowchart idea presented by the psychologist, I'll try to pronounce his name again, First name, Milhali, that's M-I-L-H-A-L-Y. Last name, Chishkshentmihali. I think I did better that time. C-S-I-K-S-Z-E-N-T-M-I-H-A-L-Y-E. Now, the theory that he proposed, and in a famous book called Flow, um, he expanded on this theory, and, and a lot of people reference this book, and it holds true what, what he presented which was the theory that there's a sweet spot of activity that no matter what you're engaged in as an activity, if you can balance out the idea of your skill level and the challenges in front of you, that you can reach what's called a flow state where you are maximally engaged and also maximally enjoying and receiving the most benefit from the thing you're engaged in. And this is a really great concept. Because it teaches you that there's a way to maximize those feelings of being in the moment and learning while also being super engaged. And it seems to be this balance of finding an activity or a certain um, level of an activity where it provides you challenge, 
but it also meets and possibly exceeds your skill level just a little bit so that you feel that extra challenge and you're learning in the process. And that gives you that sweet spot of a flow state as this psychologist presented it. So two things to consider that uh, our friend Clinton King recommends for us. The Dunning-Kruger effect, which you can easily remember as the I wore the juice guy, don't be that guy, and the flow state idea presented by this psychologist whose name I will not attempt to slaughter again. Moving on, next question. This question comes to us from Kimo at the Instagram account Crimson Head Film. And he says, Hmm, I'm actually interested in the question, how much artistic ability is a born given versus childhood or later development? He goes on, There's some who just have a born talent for guitars, for an example. They are virtuosos very early on without much training. All people seem to have certain spectrum to develop in, but they seem to have limits. I guess I'm talking about talent, like how the MMA fighter John Jones can fight well without training much and partying much of the time. And the other question he has is, another might be about the scientific understanding of creativity. It seems creativity is infinite. We can always invent more and more new ideas. So let's tackle the first question. Now, that one was about how much of artistic ability is a born given. Nature versus nurture, right? Childhood or later development. This is a really good one. I mean, there's a lot of nuance to that as well. As you mentioned with, you know, some people may seem to have a propensity for playing guitar really well. And oddly enough, that fits in very well with some anecdotal things that I can say on that because I teach music. I teach guitar, piano, music theory. And there's definitely some students that come in and they don't seem any different than any other students. And we sit down and we run through the, you know, the first lesson, the second lesson. Usually within the first 15 minutes of such a lesson, I can tell that their ability on the instrument, on the guitar, is going to go a lot easier for them than, on average, most other people's approach and their beginnings. And it's really weird that you can see it right from the first 10, 15 minutes, just really basic, you know, coordination kind of issues or really basic things like their ability to keep a rhythm while they're switching to a different string, you know, or their ability to learn how, how soon they learn to press the string down with enough pressure to cause the note to sound when they pluck it. And yeah, within those first 10, 15 minutes, and in a way, over time, it does prove true. And it's strange that that is the way it works. I wish it wasn't, you know, I wish it was that everybody could learn and be good at it and improve over time. And even though they can, there are certainly some people who just have a more of an inclination, who just have the wiring that supports that kind of task more easily, right? But it's important to mention, there are definitely cases, and I've seen these myself in students, from a very early age, let's say, students who, let's say, don't have that fluency and that special combination of wiring that makes the instrument natural for them, as natural as they would be for another. But they might have some very other important key factor, 
which is their ability to stay determined, their ability to be motivated and have patience to work on something. And that's a really important one. In some ways, the ability to know that, you know, have a good work ethic is more important than just having the raw talent. There's a great old saying in sports, and it's hard work beats talent when talent refuses to work hard. And that kind of applies here. It also applies to, you know, music practice and learning an instrument. At the end of the day, everybody has to practice, whether they have talent or not. The talent itself only gets you so far, right? So certainly there are propensities for things. Now then the question is, can you say there's a propensity for creativity? I think so. I think that would make sense, right? If there's, if there's inclinations for physical acts, there certainly seems to be people who maybe are, are more inclined for intelligence in other tasks or in other ways of thinking. There's people who have more emotional intelligence naturally. There's people who have more intelligence in math. You know, they're just more natural for them. So I think it's true that some people might have more of an innate ability toward creativity. Now, in what manner it expresses itself, though, that's the other interesting thing, right? Because just because you have an innate ability toward being creative, it doesn't mean you're going to become a visual artist. It doesn't mean you're going to uh, write only poetry, right? It could mean that you become somebody like an MMA fighter or uh, an athlete. Because it might just so happen that that magical mixture of DNA inside of you and in your body's inclinations leads you to be an athlete. And maybe that's how we get somebody like a John Jones or an Anderson Silva um, in MMA, let's say, who exhibit a form of creativity inside that ring, inside that octagon that most other fighters don't show. It could be that, right? It could be with other inclinations physically if they were born. They could have become a visual artist. But their body wanted to explore and express those particular fields. And they end up applying creativity in that domain. And I think that's the way to see it. Or that's the way I see it, right? So then the other question, the scientific understanding of creativity. And it seems creativity is infinite. That we can always invent more and more new ideas. I think that goes back to one of the other questions another listener had, that yeah, we can always invent more new ideas, but in a sense, 90% of what we're doing creatively is a reinventing of existing ideas, right? And a reinterpreting of existing styles in a particular art form or existing knowledge in the field of electrical engineering, let's say, right? Or in the field of MMA, if we're still talking that. It's the reinterpreting of the knowledge that people have already established. And so that, that other 10% is truly unique and strange and new. But otherwise, it's this constant, you know, constant rebirth that's happening with the knowledge. And so, yeah, definitely creativity seems infinite, limitless. And that maybe goes back to the whole idea of, of creativity being an energy. Maybe. Maybe it is the spark of creation, you know, still living on in us. Could be. This question comes from NYXLuna120 from Instagram. Uh, two questions. One, do you think we are inherently born creative, or is it something that is only developed when we are encouraged to do so? 
As most children daydream and have active imaginations, but as we grow up, the majority are taught to be more logical and end up moving away from such things. Yeah, let's do that one first. That's something you start to notice as a parent. I mean, I'm a father now. My daughter is going to be five by the end of this year. And it's something that you just are constantly amazed by when you're around a child. I mean, that there's a certain gift there that's just even given to you to spend that much time with a child and, and see what we all start out as, right? And so what my daughter will frequently do is just sometimes create a song for herself. We'll be in the car and she'll be in the back seat and then she just starts singing a song about something she's holding or about her day. I remember when we were coming back from our trip to Poland, she was on the plane. The plane was going to be landing soon and, and so it was relatively quiet. And she just started to make up a little song of her own, something to the effect of, what did you do with summer? What did you do with summer? What did you... And she just kept going. She just kept repeating just that verse of a song that no one's ever heard. And she just liked the little melody she was playing with. And it was quiet on the plane. And I didn't want to stop her because I thought it was a really beautiful, lovely moment. And so she just did that for about two minutes, you know? But it's just stuff like that, that you see kids just constantly playing with. You know, they're playing with ideas, they're playing with concepts, they're playing with music and melodies and everything, and imagery. And so I think that's where we all come from, right? In a certain degree. But at the same time, I think you can argue that as somebody grows up, certain people have more of an inclination to hold on to it just through their natural brain wiring. Other people, let's say, who don't have that inclination could hold on to it and continue exploring that. And then it ends up being dependent upon whether they are encouraged or discouraged to keep doing those things, right? Through their environment, through their parental guidance, through their school. If they're discouraged, well, it gets pushed aside. And in a way, that's a loss, right? They lose out on a certain richness that is given in our life through creative exploration and even personal knowledge. You learn about yourself a lot through exploring creative tasks. So that's where I stand on that. Hopefully that was a worthy answer. The second question from NYX Luna 120 is, do you think creativity is part of a collective consciousness? Seeing from research that some ideas are prevalent in all cultures and myths. Also, how some people have the same reoccurring dreams. Is this part of the human condition? Dreams brought by stress, fear, love, imagination, meditation? Or is it all one vast creative consciousness that influences us? Unquote. Wow, that's beautiful. I think it would be useful to explain the idea of collective unconscious and also to make the distinction between um, the way it's often used because it can have different connotations and whether that relates to creativity. Um, maybe we'll explore that. Let's see. So the idea of a collective unconscious uh, was developed by Carl Jung, the famous psychologist from the early 1900s. And what it basically says is that in the deepest layer of our unconscious mind, in like the bedrock foundation, 
There are common things we all share, common knowledge in a sense. But at that level, it's not programmed, it's not coded as knowledge. It's more like images and structures of behavior and structures of thought. And it's a really powerful idea because there are things that are shared across cultures, you know? There are elements that、um, are shared in every religion. There are elements that all cultures share symbolically, you know, from the basic concept of mother. The idea of a mother is an archetype, the idea of a king is an archetype, the idea of a human soul is an, even an archetype, I and mean, it's shared across all cultures. The idea of a doorway being a portal is an archetype. And so these archetypes exist on this really deep foundational level that Jung called the collective unconscious. Now, what we do with that creatively, I think definitely, we definitely interact with that, right? So I think creativity as a process it interacts with all elements of our mind. But the creative works that we often, as, as audiences, as viewers, as listeners, The things that connect with us, I think, are those artworks that have elements of the collective unconscious symbols and structures in them. It's the stories that we keep retelling over time, you know, over hundreds of years, that have those deepest archetypes embedded in their structure. And that's what we're reacting to. We're actually reacting to things that are reflected in our own psychology in a very deep and meaningful way. And we kind of view those as an absolute truth, in a sense, and a truth of human experience. And so I think creativity is its own very unique process that is individual to humans at, it, at that level of complexity. And I think it interacts with the collective unconscious. I hope that answers your question. The next one comes to us from AK Scrolls. It's A K S C R O L L S. At Instagram, and she says, Here's a thought you could explore. Others may have mentioned this to you already. It's known that a person's creativity is connected to their self confidence, which makes sense. But would you say that creativity itself helps build a person's self confidence? Or do you need self confidence to find your creative path? What came first, self confidence or creativity? Unquote. That's a good question. I mean, looking at artists, or in this case, a songwriter like Kurt Cobain, let's say, knowing his personal history a little bit, I mean, I followed him a lot as a teenager,、uh, you know, reading his journals and biographies about him and things. It's known that he had a lot of personal issues and certainly, and certainly had certain antisocial issues in terms of his. Way of interacting and not being able to interact with regular people. But he exhibited so much of an ability for creativity, and in his personal way, would in solitude, you know, be exploring these creative ideas and writing these songs over and over and, you know, spending hours a day. You know, one of the things he said was、uh, the goal is to write one song every day. That's just his goal. But the idea being, I don't think. He needed self confidence to pursue that creativity. I think in that case, the creativity was one of the few things that made him feel like a human being. 
right? Because if he wasn't connecting in a meaningful way with the social world outside, he was in solitude in his room, exploring these ideas internally and expressing them, and then occasionally sharing them with the world through, you know, playing them with his band and other musicians. But the idea being that that solitude is where it was all happening. And often it is that solitude of the artist where, you know, the magic really happens. So there's, there's you know, countless people who I think have that experience as well, that when they have nowhere else to turn to, it's creativity that gives them a validation. It's a sense of self, right? In the end, though, in the process of doing those things, when you're engaged in those acts of creativity, one, you learn about yourself. But two, when you start to get a handle on it and you're actually creating work that you're proud of, it does increase your self-confidence, right? And it really does. Because then you want to share something and you feel like you've created something valuable when you weren't, let's say, talented in sports or talented in any other social arena. Now you've created something that you show somebody and they're like, oh, that's cool. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I know I certainly have some friends who, you know, when they were going through school, junior high or maybe even earlier, you know, there were the funny kids in the class, the class clown, there was the bully of the class, there was a smart kid, and then there was the kid who could draw, right? There was the kid who could do something really cool when he was doodling. And then that becomes definitely a form of developing self-confidence too. So in my experience and, you know, what I've seen, it develops in that way. But I do get what you're saying, that in terms of a public life as a creator, as somebody who's going out, and someone like a Marilyn Manson, who's presenting themselves in front of the public and saying, these are my works, right? And performing, and anybody who ends up you know, going on a stage and touring and all this stuff, that definitely takes a good deal of self-confidence because that's scary. And I think all of those people are scared of that experience because how could you not be? They're human and they're not psychopaths because if they were psychopaths, they wouldn't be able to create such emotionally connecting work. So there's definitely an element there where if you are going to live a very public life as a creator, and I agree, yeah, you need at least an above average level of self-confidence that tells you, this is good stuff. I'm gonna be showing people some valuable things. And so it's both in that sense, right? Thank you, great question. This question comes to us from sensitive underscore sunbeam on Instagram. And she says, question one, what is the measure of a creative success? Profit, popularity, etc." Question two, how to manage being creative for self versus being creative for profit or for company standard. Good ones. So the first one, what is the measure of a creative success? Profit, popularity, etc. I think success, it's one of these curious terms, right? We use these all the time, but uh, we, we, we're not so quick to define them. Success seems like an intangible. The same way value as a word and as, as a thing we use is an intangible. You know, how do we define value? It changes from time to time, changes from year to year. You know, how do you value a notebook that somebody wrote in? Depends who wrote in it, right? 
If it's a notebook that Emily Dickinson or Leonardo da Vinci wrote in, the values are different versus if it's the same notebook, but it was written, you know, by you or me, right? People would value it very, very differently. Same thing, I think, with success. It's an intangible. It's different for each person. And our capitalistic kind of society, it leads us to believe that success is a measure of your economic earnings, right? Of how much you're able to accrue in a period of time and how much people are paying you. Is that success though? When we look at people like Robin Williams, when we look at people like Chris Cornell, who commit suicide, Anthony Bourdain, you know, they certainly were successful. So I think we have to redefine or at least acknowledge in our general discourse that success isn't the things that capitalism tells us it is. There's different kinds of success. And each person, I think, needs to consider what is success in their definition. It's a personal thing, you know? To one person's success may be being able to have a family, a child, a house, while maintaining a stable job. To another person's success may be being able to be creative on their free time while having a job that gives them benefits, you know? But yet to another person, success is, of course, pursuing a creative career that gives them a steady living and also creative satisfaction. Now that one, in my own personal experience, seeing how people live their lives that I know who are creatives and in my own life, that one's really difficult. And it's just the truth. The odds that you'll nail a job that will give you steady income and creative satisfaction is one difficult, possible. But then, let's say, you have the job, creative satisfaction. Uh, Most likely that job doesn't give you much free time. And most likely if you don't have much free time, you're not going to be able to hold down a family or a meaningful relationship for very long, which is the flip side of having a very demanding career, right? And is that success? I don't know. That also gets into the realm of value. It depends. Depends how much you define the value in your life by the success of your career. How much you define your identity by your career that you're in, right? So it's, I think, a much broader question. Unfortunately, I don't have a simple answer, but I do suggest that each person sits down and thinks about it. It's an important thing to think about because it relates to the value you put in your life. I've started to come to my own conclusions in my own life about that because I used to be very, very career-centric to the point it was a detriment, I think, to my personal life. You know, I would give up everything for the career I was pursuing. For a number of years, I was pursuing the career of, of being a film composer. And I don't regret it. I had a lot of great experiences. I made a lot of good money. And I worked on a lot of cool projects. I acknowledge now that if I had made other decisions that would have led me down the path, um, my life would have continued being very busy. And I wouldn't have had time for the valuable and meaningful personal relationships I have now. And for my daughter and my family that we're building, you know. And would that be success? I don't know. It depends. You know, who knows where I would be if I was in that position. 
but I suspect, judging it from where I'm right now, it wouldn't feel like success. There would be cognitive dissonance there. You know, I'd be in some ways missing out on an aspect of life that I think provides most people a lot of value. So that's where I am on that. Question number two from sensitive underscore sunbeam. How to manage being creative for self versus being creative for a profit or for company standard? That's a good one. Well, we should first establish that we are creatives, a term that implies we have a natural inclination toward creative tasks. And in many ways, we define ourselves through those tasks. And it's part of our identity. You know, if you feel that creating a work of art, work of poetry, you know, writing something or working on a film during the weekend is just as satisfying to you or more satisfying than going out on a social event or a party, then you're more likely a creative. You know, if you feel going to a museum and spending three hours there is more valuable to you than going to a networking event, you know, you're more likely a creative. It's those kinds of things that I think help you notice that aspect of yourself. So now, if we're talking about creatives, people who need that and yet use their creativity for, let's say, a company or for hired work or freelance work, you know, how to balance what is your identity versus working for profit, I think the way to do it is to still leave yourself some time to pursue your own creative projects however small they may be, you know, maybe one hour a week. If you're working on somebody else's project, working on paid work, one hour a week pursuing your own thing, you know, something that feeds you in some way, that grows your soul in a sense, right? And this will help alleviate the anxiety you feel when you realize that you've been creating for other people for so long or creating for pay, I think it alleviates that to a certain extent. I hope that makes sense. Our next question comes from Ozzy, and she says, what is the line between art and not art? Her second question, what is your definition of evil? Ooh, that one gets me excited. The third question, what makes things real? Hmm, interesting. So back to the first one, what is the line between art and not art? It's fluid. Each society at any given time will decide that because art is in many ways a reflection of human experience. And as a society progresses, it needs to see certain things about itself. And that is part of the artist's role, whether the artist is creating poetry, writing, film, you know, music, visual art. The artist is reflecting back an element of human experience to the society around them. And that's important. That's important because that's what makes the art relevant. And that's what gives it the context, the framing that makes the society engaged by it. That it is a reflection of what is going on at the time and what is linked to human experience. And those things, I think, are often what are considered art as abstract as they may be, or as realistic looking as they may be, but it is linked to that, I think. It's a bit philosophical, right? But at the same time, what is art and not art to each individual can change. 
It can change throughout the day. I can sometimes be walking the dogs and for a moment I see, you know, a certain set of leaves uh, near the sidewalk that are just beautifully arranged, right? There's something aesthetically pleasing about these leaves. Or, or I'll be walking and I'll see a stray cigarette butt on the ground, half finished perhaps. And I'll look at it and I'll stare at it and I'll, I'll think, you know, wow, the color of this cigarette butt against the asphalt makes for a unique contrast. And it also tells a story. It's telling me that this person maybe was in a rush because they didn't finish their cigarette completely and they tossed it. And the ash is still left there on the cement a bit. And is that art? Yeah, to me it is. In that moment, I take a picture of it to save for later for whatever reason. Maybe post it on an Instagram story or something. Follow me on Instagram. But at the end of the day, I think it's a combination of those two things. What is relevant to society because it is a reflection of human experience that is relevant and each individual's view. Now, on to your second question, Ozzy. What is my definition of evil? Oh my goodness, I love that question. I've thought about this one a lot, and it's a serious topic, because, again, it traces its roots into what is human existence. It's easy to write off this term, evil, as something you know, supernatural and, and linked to religion, but I think it's important to acknowledge that evil exists. Let's say if we completely forego the idea that evil exists as an energy, just as a term. It's a really useful term. There are certain things people can do, societies can do, that governments can do, that should be called evil. Because it's a term that tells us this is the extreme of human behavior that is the most unacceptable. Now, then you can ask, well, why is it unacceptable? What elements must define it to be unacceptable? So this is how I define it. Evil is the willful and celebratory destruction of life in an artful way. A destruction that serves no natural purpose but the enjoyment of the destroyer. So what am I saying here? Evil is the willful and celebratory destruction of something, of life in general. That could mean the life of animals, that can be the life of other humans. It can even be the life of plants. But I added this term in an artful way, specifically because art is one of the elements of human life that is so unique to us that it is meant specifically for the betterment of society and the betterment of civilization and the betterment of human existence. But it can be twisted, it can be perverted toward these ends. It can be perverted to the use of destroying human life. What's an example of this? Something like what would occur in the concentration camps in Auschwitz, in Poland. The Germans would have a gate that all the Jews and the prisoners would enter through, above which said, work will set you free. This term, this phrase is something everyone would see and something that everyone understood as just a general term of the concentration camp. What did it imply? Work will set you free. During any of the prisoners' time at the concentration camp, they would be put into forced labor situations under the most atrocious conditions, with the implication written right above them that the work they're doing will eventually set them free. While 
fully knowing that that was a lie, fully knowing that that phrase was a mockery of the very work they were doing and that the work they were doing was completely pointless. And so it was human life being destroyed in an artful way, which is so bizarre. What else can we call that? We can call that evil, right? There were just, just terrifying examples of what would happen there. I'm not going to get into the child deaths because those turn my stomach. But one example of an aspect of adult life that would occur in a place like Auschwitz, and we know this to occur because the survivors tell us, there would be brothels in the town of Auschwitz that were within the concentration camp. That's how big this concentration camp was. And so the brothel, who would be in it? Who would the prostitutes be? They would be Jewish women that were prisoners. Now, who were those for? They were for the German soldiers, but also for the other prisoners. Now, these prisoners who would do this work, if the work was good under Nazi soldier standards, their reward would be a visit to the brothel at the end of the week. Now, this was a particularly disgraceful visit because who are the prostitutes? Other Jewish prisoners. And they would occasionally be forced to have sex with them. And other times, they would just be put in the room. What would the Jewish prisoners, the male prisoners, do who would be forced to put into this room with, you know, these other Jewish women? They would just talk to them. They would just sit there. You know, on, in these just unbelievable conditions that they were put in. I mean, what is that? What else can you call that? It's evil, right? All the while knowing that their friends are being killed and that their existence has been reduced to something completely pointless. Right? What is that? What can you call that? There has to be a term. The term is evil. It is the willful and celebratory destruction of life in an artful way, perverting the act of creativity to celebrate destroying life. That's how I see it. And it continues to happen in the world. There's no doubt about it that in various countries these things continue to happen in various ways. So it's important. It's important to have such a term to define those things. And the third question, what makes things real? What makes things real? I think we convince ourselves and we have to convince ourselves that what we see and what we experience with our senses is reality. And in a way, it's a useful illusion because it allows us to continue functioning in our roles in society, right? The second we start to assume that that's not reality and that our senses may be lying to us or don't see reality for what it is, we become distracted and we kind of become unsettled in our understanding of what reality is and hence our place in the reality because maybe the reality that we're all perceiving is false. In that way, we can define it as the commonly agreed upon and experienced form of reality is reality. But as we know, science tells us there's so much more to it than we see or hear or touch. And what is that then? What is that? Maybe there should be two terms or more than two terms. There should be a, a term for what is the commonly agreed upon reality. And then there is the term for what science tells us is reality, perhaps that we don't see. And then there should be another term for what is above that. You know, what is beyond our reach? 
what we cannot detect with our senses and what we cannot detect with our scientific instruments, but we can assume through reason and formulas exists, something like dark matter, which we so far have not been able to prove, but scientists, physicists, assume it exists because it would explain a lot of theories and formulas that work. So it would be useful actually to have extra terms for different forms of reality that we can intuit exist. And thank you. Really fun question. This question comes to us from Angelo Ferriante on Instagram. That's spelled A-N-G-E-L-O-F-E-R-I-A-N-T-E. And he asks a Nikola Tesla question. I'm excited. He says, I have been fascinated by Tesla and was curious if he did any work with the spiritual realms of things, or was he strictly a metaphysical scientist? Unquote. I think we can say something like Tesla's religion, Tesla's God, was electricity and nature. In all the writings I've read from him and the anecdotes from people who knew him, he didn't seem like he was particularly religious or religious at all, but he definitely, without a doubt, had a reverence for nature and a complete awe for electricity. But, but on that spiritual front, that question reminded me of an excerpt from one of his writings. It's from a book called My Inventions and Other Writings from Nikola Tesla. Highly recommend it. Really cool. You get to kind of sit in Tesla's mind for a little bit with all of this stuff. And he has one particular passage exactly about this. So I'm excited to share this one with you because there was really no space and no relevant area to talk about this in that podcast episode about him. Tesla writes, Ever since I was told by some of the greatest men of the time, leaders in science whose names are immortal, that I am possessed of an unusual mind, I bent all my thinking faculties on the solution of great problems regardless of sacrifice. For many years I endeavored to solve the enigma of death and watched eagerly for every kind of spiritual indication. But only once in the course of my existence have I had an experience which momentarily impressed me as supernatural. It was at the time of my mother's death. I had become completely exhausted by pain and long vigilance, and one night was carried to a building about two blocks from our home. As I lay helpless there, I thought that if my mother died while I was away from her bedside, she would surely give me a sign. Two or three months before, I was in London in company with my late friend, Sir William Crookes, when spiritualism was discussed, and I was under the full sway of these thoughts. I might not have paid attention to other men, but was susceptible to his arguments as it was his epochal work on radiant matter, which I had read as a student, that made me embrace the electrical career. I reflected that the conditions for a look into the beyond were most favorable, for my mother was a woman of genius and particularly excelling in the powers of intuition. During the whole night, every fiber in my brain was strained in expectancy, but Nothing happened, until early in the morning, when I fell in a sleep, or perhaps a swoon, and saw a cloud carrying angelic figures of marvelous beauty, one of whom gazed upon me lovingly and gradually assumed the features of my mother. The appearance slowly floated across the room and vanished, and I was awakened by an indescribably sweet song of many voices. In that instant, a certitude 
which no words can express, came upon me that my mother had just died. And that was true. I was unable to understand the tremendous weight of the painful knowledge I received in advance, and wrote a letter to Sir William Crookes, while still under the domination of these impressions and in poor bodily health. When I recovered, I sought for a long time the external cause of this strange manifestation, and, to my great relief, I succeeded after many months of fruitless effort. I had seen the painting of a celebrated artist, representing allegorically one of the seasons in the form of a cloud with a group of angels which seemed to actually float in the air, and this had struck me forcefully. It was exactly the same that appeared in my dream, with the exception of my mother's likeness. The music came from the choir in the church nearby at the early mass of Easter morning, explaining everything satisfactorily in conformity with scientific facts. This occurred long ago, and I have never had the faintest reason since to change my views on psychical and spiritual phenomena, for which there is absolutely no foundation. The belief in these is the natural outgrowth of intellectual development. Religious dogmas are no longer accepted in their orthodox meaning, but every individual clings to faith in a supreme power of some kind. We all must have an ideal to govern our conduct and ensure contentment, but it is immaterial whether it be one of creed, art, science, or anything else, so long as it fulfills the function of a dematerializing force. It is essential to the peaceful existence of humanity as a whole that one common conception should prevail. And those are his thoughts on spirituality. Pretty interesting. It certainly sounds like something that the psychologist Carl Jung would say fits into a moment of synchronicity, that moment where he had such a vivid dream that happened to match up with his mother's passing. Pretty strange that he completely still writes it off, even though it felt like such a significant moment. That's interesting. But hopefully that answers your question. Certainly a remarkable and unique man with an incredible intellect of his own. A last question comes from Veronica Paisano, and she asks, In this age of posting and reposting, how do we find meaningful inspiration to create art that is not just a regurgitation of someone else's art? Unquote. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of T.S. Eliot's famous quote, Immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. And I always reflect on that in terms of, you know, what that means. And there's also Pablo Picasso said very much similar, the same thing. He said, good artists copy, great artists steal. Maybe he stole that from T.S. Eliot. <laughs> Who knows? But at the end of the day, that's an important element, I think, to remember. That creativity is an organic thing, right? It's a process. And at times, the process of inspiration includes seeing a good idea from somebody else who's in the same field you are, same medium. And then you take that good idea and you make it even greater in your own way. And I think that's what those quotes imply. The idea that if you borrow it, you're just copying it. And then if you steal it, you're making it your own in your own way and hopefully improving upon it. And we see that throughout the history of art, right? We see that in even somebody who is credited to be such a genius like Leonardo da Vinci, whose famous illustration, The Vitruvian Man, is actually Leonardo da Vinci taking an idea from another artist of the time named Vitruvius, who uh, illustrated the same exact thing, albeit 
a little worse, a little worse proportion. And Leonardo da Vinci took it, improved upon it, and came up with this famous idea. But of course, he stole it, right? At least the name of it credits somewhat of the original artist, Vitruvian Man, is referring to the original artist Vitruvius. So it's important to remember that art does have an organic quality, the same way that you know plants growing in a garden or a field interact with each other, right? And they use the same soil, right? So as an artist, you can take another artist's idea, a musician taking another musician's you know, riff or melody or something. I think it's supposed to work that way. But if you overtly use those things and you don't give them enough of a new life, I think in that case, then it's unfair. But then beyond that, to the more personal aspect of your question, which is uh, finding meaningful inspiration, let's say, away from social media, I think it does help to be engaged with other mediums to a certain extent. Like if you're mainly in visual art, to take some mental breaks from visual art and digesting other people's art and read a really good book, right? A really good novel, let's say. Something fantastical, something that you're not used to thinking about. And then in the process of being engaged by really good content that's not in the medium you participate in, that gives you good ideas. Like, that certainly has happened to me many times. You know, watching a really interesting film or reading a story or going to a museum and seeing artworks that you aren't used to normally. And the artworks that are in a style you're not used to can actually inspire things in your own style as well. And that way you generate new ideas based on relevant things from other mediums. And those can be pretty unique too, you know? I hope that makes sense. And thank you, thank you for asking. And we did it. This concludes the first listener Q&A episode of Creative Codex. Those were some really great questions. Um, some things that were way more existential, metaphysical, spiritual than I expected. You know, I, I thought some of the questions were going to be like, what was Nikola Tesla's favorite color? But instead, you guys were asking me, what is the definition of evil? And where does creative energy come from? Uh, I loved it all. Thank you so much. You know, I appreciate this. It really engages me to think more deeply about these things. And it shows me where you guys are at in terms of the way you think about these things, which is really insightful too. So I hope that this has been interesting and engaging in some way for you. And I hope my answers have not been too meandering and I haven't fumbled too much and you've gained some form of meaning and insight from them. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber at any level, $1 or above, and it would be most, most appreciated. That helps the show keep going and will help me in the future with expenses that help the show grow. Also, if you're a new listener, head on over to Instagram and you can follow me at my username at MJ Dorian, that's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N, same as on Twitter. And you can stay tuned for next month when we will be doing a new narrative episode that I'm really excited about. I've already been researching and reading. It's going to be a big one. Deep dive. If you have any other thoughts, questions, comments, feel free to message me on Instagram or Twitter, and I'll be looking forward to those. 
And please share this podcast with anyone who you think might be interested and would also enjoy it. Until next time, this is Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. Thank you.